All right, Tim Bunyan Shapiro, Divorce 661's Daily Perspective, episode 21. Uh, what I do in these videos, if you've been watching or have been watching, rather, is go over uh, what I've done for the day, cases I've taken on, issues that clients are having with the courts, and we will go through all that, and hopefully you will learn from that. Um, so here's the brief recap of what happened today. It took on six new cases, three of which were brand new cases. Uh, they hadn't filed anything yet. Three were people having trouble getting their divorce finalized and uh, hired us to take over and finalize their paperwork, which we're always happy to do. Um, judgments that we submitted to court today, <clears throat> we had three Santa Clara judgments. Nice thing about that, because I have to mail file those, is that I was able to fit them all in one priority mail envelope. So that was nice. Uh, one San Diego judgment that was uh, mail filed as well. Kern County judgment, three LA County judgments were e-filed, uh, Sacramento judgment, Orange County judgment, and uh, I think I already said Kern County. I uh, must have had two of those. Uh, rejected judgments. So Torrance, I took on a Torrance rejected judgment case. Um, and interesting, uh, the reason I wanted to bring this up is that even though a response was filed in this case, the court still wanted the parties to notarize their judgment because they were terminating spouse support in a long-term marriage. So the reason the courts do this, and they do it every once in a while, and let me back up and just say, generally speaking, when the response is filed, you do not need the notary. You only need a notary of the respondent when it's a default with a written agreement. But if there's an appearance, which is the response, a notary is generally not required. But I have seen the courts require a notary even though a response was filed. When you're doing something, I don't want to say out of the ordinary, but you're doing something where... Um, it's going against public policy or the court's rules. So the issue with this is in marriages of long duration, they're married over the 10 years, uh, the court will generally retain jurisdiction over the issue of spouse support indefinitely. And so you would mark reserve jurisdiction in case one of you wanted to request support at some time in the future. Very popular. Many of my clients want to terminate the court's jurisdiction, even though the general rule is for it to be retained, meaning having that ability to award support. So in those cases, um, the courts will want to just, they know you're signing it, they know there's an appearance, but they want you to notarize it so there's evidence. So if you try and go back to court and say, hey, I didn't sign that, or I didn't know what I was signing, they can say, look, not only did you uh, make an appearance and file a response, but you also both notarized the settlement agreement. So that was what was interesting on that. We generally don't have an issue with that because I'm usually having both parties file their um or notarize their paperwork anyways, because we're doing that default with written agreement style. And we are, I'd say at least 80% of the time, maybe higher 90% of the time, people in long-term marriages are terminating uh, jurisdiction over support. So that's totally fine. All right. Uh, also with this, this rejected judgment. So this, this was a torrent rejected judgment they took over. That was one of the issues. There's multiple issues with their their case. And I want to talk about, and this is not just with Torrance, this is not just with LA County, this is going to apply to all courts, is I keep hounding on you guys to please do not file your property declarations, the FL-160s, when you have an amicable divorce. Uh, it causes all kinds of problems. The the rejected uh, what the re reject sheet that LA County provided for this case was saying that they were not addressing all of the assets and debts they had listed in their property declarations that they previously filed, both for the, on the petitioner side and on the respondent side. And specifically, what had happened is they because their their judgment was being rejected multiple times that they actually had sold their house uh, before um, the, the they submitted their judgment to court. So, but when they filed for divorce, it hadn't been sold yet. They were, um, they uh, put in their property declarations to say, hey, 50% of XYZ house. 
Uh, but when it came time to do their judgment, the house had already sold, so they didn't feel the need to list that in the settlement agreement. And that was one of the reasons the judgment was rejected because they didn't list the house that was in the property declaration. So if you find yourself in that situation where you've already filed the property declarations, but then property no longer exists, it could be a vehicle, a credit card, anything, anything you listed on the property declaration, even if it's gone, you still need to address it in the settlement agreement and put in there who kept it or if it was sold or whatever the case might be. So if you haven't filed your property declarations and your case is amicable, just don't do it. It'll save you a lot of problems from happening. Okay, so we had two cases in the last two days where they wanted to state that their spouse will stay on their health insurance plan. And it was interesting that it was two cases this week. So what they were trying to do, when one case, they're, 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 the settlement agreement terms they provided to me was that spouse A will keep spouse B on their health insurance until for three years past the divorce case. The other one was for five years past the divorce case being finalized. And you can't do that. Once your divorce is finalized, the six months has passed and you're officially divorced, you're no longer a dependent and therefore can no longer be on the health insurance of your spouse. And that's nothing you can uh, change by putting it into a settlement agreement. The courts years ago, and I've talked about this before, uh, people said, well, can we try it? And I said, sure. And of course it got rejected because you can't, you can't put in something in there that's going against public policy or rules. And that being the dependency issue. So uh, one thing you can do if you're trying to extend the amount of time you're um, going to remain on your spouse's health insurance is simply delay the final divorce date. We can do that in a couple of ways. We can um, just submit it later on. We can make the date of service of the petition further out so the clock doesn't actually start ticking until a certain time period. We've done that in the past where we're trying to, uh, maybe not for um, health insurance purposes, but they want a targeted uh, date of their final divorce date. Sometimes if you have kids and they want to do taxes one more year, uh, this usually happens around April, May each year. Well, we can have it, we can target the divorce. We can kind of force it to finalize at a date in the following year by just delaying that uh, jurisdiction date, the date of service of the petition that will force the six months in a day into like January 2nd is what we usually do. But that, as far as health insurance, you cannot uh, remain on there. We cannot put it in the agreement. Let me say it this way. We can't put in the agreement that you're going to cover your spouse or the spouse is going to remain on health insurance for three or five years post-divorce. But if you end up doing that, I don't know if that's legal, not legal. If you just forget to tell your spouse that, or I'm sorry, you forget to tell the health insurance company that you've been divorced for three years, I'm sure you know, there's people that do that. I don't know what the financial consequences of doing that are. I did a, a, a different video last week where I uh, basically it discussed um, your options as far as COBRA, uh, getting a separate health plan, or even having your spouse pay for your health insurance plan for a period of time if that's the intent. Or maybe you guys can split that. All right, next subject. Uh I had a case, a judgment. One of the judgments I took over uh, was a Riverside case. And the issue they were having when they submitted the judgment is the the summons was done incorrectly. Now, the summons is really hard to get wrong because there's not a lot of information that goes on there. It's really just your name and the petitioner's name, the respondent's name, and your name and address at the bottom of page one of the summons. This is the FL 110. But 
the the error was they didn't list their name and address at the bottom of the summons. So what's happening here is when they their reject sheet they sent me to they hired me to take care of this for them. It basically had to start over their divorce case because the summons and petition were not filled out correctly, mostly the summons in this case. And so the court said in the reject letter, you need to amend your summons and petition, refile, reserve, restart the 30 days, refile the default, all of that because the issues of the summons uh, being uh, wrong. And basically just left, they left out their name and address at the bottom. That's it. That's causing them and their entire divorce case to have to start over from, from scratch. We don't have to pay court fees again. We, we can amend it. Not a problem. But you hear me always harping on why it's so important that the summons and petition be correct because that can cause the judgment to be rejected. And I also tell you that the obviously when you filed your summons and petition, the courts are not reviewing that. I tell you guys that all the time. The court is not reviewing your paperwork Aside from your summons and petition being totally blank, they're probably just going to accept your money, take your fee. Obviously, the clerk would have saw this error. They still stamped the forms and gave them their filed summons and petition because that's what they're told to do. They're not supposed to tell you, hey, this is wrong. They're not supposed to give, quote, unquote, legal advice. So uh, this is going to cause a delay in this client's uh, divorce case because we it's automatically going to start over the 30 days. Uh, because we have to be refiled, reserved, and because we're doing this as a default with agreement, we have to let those 30 days go by again, even though they're in agreement before we can submit the default with a written agreement type divorce case. And the issue this is causing them is she's actually trying to buy a house and she can't do that until the divorce is finalized because she told the lender about the divorce case. So now they want the divorce to be completely done because their concern obviously is if, you know, if there's going to be child support paid or spouse support paid, even if they show the settlement agreement to the lender, the lender is still going to want to make sure that's signed by the judge. So now this is further delaying her ability to buy a house. This is how important it is folks to get your paperwork done correctly from the very beginning to include the summons and petition. Next subject is the, uh, fact that the courts do not always do the same thing every time, like the standard of the divorce process changes from court to court and even from clerk to clerk or judge to judge in the same uh, county. So I'll give you an example. So what I'm talking about here is we had two identical cases that were default. Let me give you the facts. Default without an agreement. So no agreement between the parties. The other party was not filing a response or participating at all. The complication was there was children involved and we have to address custody, obviously spouse support and child support and all that. And now we fall back into those rules where you can't, because there's no agreement, no, the, the respondent's not signing anything. So it has to be, the judgment has to be based on how you file the petition. So in both these cases, we filed a petition with the petitioner having full legal and physical custody, reasonable right of visitation to the respondent, because I, I've talked about doing the no um, if you have no um, custody to the respondent, the courts will generally want you to set a hearing. We did have a we did have another one of those this week where we had to set a hearing for the client, and they just want to know why. Why are you giving? Why are you assigning no custody to the respondent? They'll usually approve it, but only after a hearing. They want to get some testimony on the record. But here's the facts again: um, default without an agreement, uh, child custody, um, sole physical and legal to the petitioner with visitation to the respondent. Um, no child support, et cetera, et cetera. One was in Van Nuys. One was in downtown LA. Um, the Van Nuys one went through just fine with no no child support, reserve jurisdiction. You know, we've been talking about that. 
The exact same case downtown, they rejected the judgment saying that child support was not addressed in the uh, petition and therefore they can, you cannot request it to be reserved in the judgment. Here's the interesting thing about that. The petition does not address child support. The child support, you don't put no child support. There's not even a box to address child support or to make a request for child support. So one case got approved. The one in LA did not. So now we have to figure out, okay, do I try and send them the um, case that was approved in Van Nuys and say it should be approved? Because specifically what they're saying is the child support was not, it was not requested to be reserved in the petition. And it was saying that um, the health insurance on the judgment we said was going to be paid um, 100% by the petitioner and said that was not asked for in the petition either. And those things aren't normally addressed in there at all. So what I'm probably going to end up doing is going back to the way we used to do it before the reserve jurisdiction, submit a distal master calculation showing there's no um, child support based on 100% timeshare to the uh, petitioner and do a non-guideline order and try and submit it through that way and see what the court says about that. I'm hoping they don't ask for a hearing to be set. They might. It's uh, the court's discretion to do that. And if they do, then, you know, that's just uh, the courts are going to do what they're going to do. So we'll have to just uh, work around that and uh, do whatever they tell us to do. But yeah, we'll try and get that submitted and in. And I uh, hope you enjoyed episode 21 of Day in the Life of an LDA, Divorce 661 Daily Perspective. If you guys need help with your divorce, I can take care of it anywhere in California. You have a good day. We'll talk to you tomorrow.